Let's pray as we consider this text this morning. Our Father, in the beginning, you spoke the world into existence. And you are continuing a work of new creation through your word, through this, your written word that we've just considered. We pray that it would work on us this morning. We pray for your spirit to help pierce hearts, speak through me somehow. Um, We ask that it would all be for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So John, in in this gospel, has been... um, He's been making this claim that the world's not neutral, that the world is um, it's in darkness, is the way he describes it. It's not a neutral place. It's bent, the world is bent on its own destruction. John's prologue, chapter 1, verse 9, remember it's all, it's, the whole gospel summarized in, that, in those first 18 verses. But he says in, in chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, Jesus which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him. And yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. The world didn't know him. His own people didn't receive him. And here's the thing. Because Jesus is life, light, and truth, To say no to Jesus is to opt out of those things and to choose to remain in darkness on a fast track to death, living in a sea of lies. Like that's that's what the world has chosen. Okay? Now, but here's the thing. For those that come to Christ, that choose life, light, and truth, we've now been put in an uneasy relationship with that world that's in darkness. Because we're now in Christ. And our experience in the world is, Jesus said, is a lot like my experience. You can expect that. The way I was ex- experienced life in this fallen world is the way you're going to experience it because you've been brought into my light. And you're now light in a dark world. So that puts us in this uneasy relationship with the world. Now it's true that every culture on planet Earth has points of agreement with our faith, because every, every, uh, every human is, is created in the image of God, and so as humans get together and they organize and build culture and build you know, cities and all that, there's going to be points of agreement that a Christian has in all those cultures, but because we're also fallen at the same time and bent on our own destruction, there's going to be rub. We, as Christ's followers, will experience a rub in the world. Difficulty. Challenges. And that's that that rub is the focus today because what what we see is a clash. A clash between the powers of this world and Christ and his newly his new follower. Who we'll we'll see that in just a moment. Now back in 1933, in July of 1933, the uh, Nazi in Germany, the Nazi party began an effort of coordination is what they called it. And it was their attempt to bring all of German life into alignment with Nazi ideology. And the very last pocket of resistance in this effort was the German church. But even the German churches, by and large, uh, fell under Nazi alignment. Okay, the, 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 there, were, there were the German Christians 
that Joseph Thomas describes as the, the German Christian movement was dedicated to replacing everything Jewish within the Christian faith and conforming Christianity to Nazi ideology. Well, the famous pastor theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer saw straight through it. He's like, would have none of it. And so he and a group of other pastors and theologians created the Confessing Church that tried to stand outside of uh, Nazism. And, and Bonhoeffer knew that this was going to be a tough road. In the 1930s, it was a pretty sizable group. But as the 1930s gave way to the 1940s, just as Bonhoeffer predicted, he said, this could cost us our lives, and we're going to watch this movement shrink very quickly. And it did. It shrank. And as you may know from, from uh, history, Bonhoeffer eventually um, died as a result of his resistance to the Nazi regime. Now you may think, well, of course, Jesus and Hitler don't go along. Like, that's pretty obvious. That's a very extreme example, but See, what John is showing us is that Christianity and the world, whether it's Nazism or whatever, there's always going to be conflict. There's always going to be points of rub in the world. And that's especially true for us in the American context. Because what's happened over the last, really 300 years, but we're feeling it in the last maybe 20 to 30 years, maybe even 50 years, is that the... Uh, Christians in America have kind of enjoyed a Judeo-Christian consensus. The winds have kind of been at our back for a long time. And that Judeo-Christian consensus is kind of falling apart. Maybe it's already completely in disarray. And all of a sudden, the winds are now in our faces. And we don't, it's hard to make sense. What do we do? Well, this passage is going to help us understand how we relate to a world that is fundamentally on a different track than we, Christ Church, is on. So that's the, that's the question to consider. And we've got three headings. The first is the clash. There's a clash in this passage. And then the second is the parents who buckle under the clash. The parents who buckle out of fear. And then the third point is the blind man who withstands in the midst of the clash. So the clash, the parents who buckle, the blind man who withstands. And in the process, we're going we're gonna, to, I think, see how we're called as Christ's people to relate to the world around us, to, to encounter that world, that rub, with courage, Christian courage and conviction. So there's a clash. Now, we don't have printed in your order of worship verses 8 through 12, but... You, you will recall last week, uh, Jesus healed a blind man in the first seven verses of, the, of chapter 9, John chapter 9. He heals a blind man. And this blind man goes in verses 8 through 12, I think, is, is, is the section. The blind man goes to his neighbors. And his neighbors are astounded that this blind man now sees. In fact, the touch of Jesus in this blind man's life means that his neighbor, they don't even, they don't even believe it's him. They don't fully recognize him. Recognize him. The man has been so transformed. And so what the, his neighbors do is they say, we've got to figure out what's going on. This is crazy. A blind man receives sight. This doesn't happen. We need to take this man to the Pharisees to have them like kind of make sense of this dramatic 
transformation in the life of this man. It's not that they're trying to tattle on the, the, the man. They're, the Pharisees are kind of the gatekeepers. They're the purveyors. They're the, the framers of the, of the world of which Jerusalem is a part. And they, they want to bring him to the Pharisees so they can make sense of it for them. And so that's where we pick up our passage this morning. And predictably, the Pharisees, they have a beef. We learn in verse 14 that Jesus did this healing, you got it, on the Sabbath, and they don't like it. There were several things you could not do on, on the Sabbath. There were, actually, there were a lot of things you couldn't do on the Sabbath. So many fine points to Sabbath keeping. Um, and Jesus does them. For example, I'll give you a few examples. There was no healing allowed on the Sabbath unless the person was about to die. If it was healing to save a life, you could do that. But if not, no healing. Uh, you couldn't get this. You couldn't spit on the ground. Now, you remember last week, what did Jesus do to do this miracle? He spit into the dirt and made mud, and he anointed the man's eyes, and the man saw, right? Well, the, the, the Pharisees said, as the law had developed, they said that you can't spit on the dirt, because when you spit on the dirt, it disrupts the soil, which constitutes a type of plowing, okay? Um, so he did that. You couldn't anoint a person's eyes, on the Sabbath, he did that. You see, he's, he's violated the Sabbath in several, maybe more than that, but those are at least the three that, that, that rise to the fore. Now, here's, though, the problem with the Pharisees in this. Their fundamental problem is that they are trying to use the law as it had developed to understand Jesus. And that's not how it works. Jesus... You understand the law through Jesus. You don't understand Jesus through the law. It's the other way around. And they had missed that. They had built, the Pharisees had built this religious system of rules. And they had, and by the way, they had achieved a lot of power within that system. A lot of power. And with Jesus doing these miracles, he did a similar miracle in John chapter 5. He's just, he's toppling their little house of cards that they've built, and that they enjoy so much power within. And it drives them crazy. They can't handle it. They can't stand it. He's leveling these, these devastating critiques to the Pharisees. He's like, you're so concerned about looking a certain way, about being buttoned up, spiritually speaking, and yet on the inside you're rotting. He's, he, he's, he likened it to like a cereal bowl. He said, you, you guys, all you do is you fine-tune, you polish, you scrub, you, you wax your bowls on the outside, and you don't even touch the inside. And what's the, the only thing that matters when you're washing your cereal bowls? The inside. Because that's where the food goes. That's where the, that's where the mess is. That's what you want to be clean, because that's what you eat out of. He's saying, you've got, Jesus is saying to them, you've got it all backwards. You've got the wrong problem. You're all about optics, and I'm about the heart, about what's going on on the inside. And I think we're tempted to do something similar. You know, the Pharisees were like, ah, he spit, he spit on the dirt, we have a rule against that, you can't do that. He spit on the dirt. For them, that was the big problem in the situation. Jesus spit in the dirt. But we have similar things. We misdiagnose the problem all the time. We think, man, if, 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 if I could um, get my kids in the school that I would like for them to be in, then our problems would be solved. 
Or if we could just get into that neighborhood or get that house or get this raise. Or there's all sorts of examples. In the church setting, if we could just get Sunday school hour. If we had a Sunday school hour, then this church would be all right. That's what we need. We've got all of these ideas of what we think is like the problem, but it's not. And meanwhile, Jesus is walking around healing. And remember the healing of the blind man? We said it was a vivid picture of what Christ is doing. Remember the significance of the mud? He wasn't spitting in the dirt just to make, you know, just to kind of be gross and get his hands muddy. The, the Greek word palos connotes almost every time, whether it's Jewish literature or even pagan literature, it connotes creation. The gods or God makes man out of palos, out of clay, out of mud. And Jesus is spitting in the dirt. He's turning the dirt into palos, into clay, into mud. And he's putting it on the guy's eyes and he's saying, look, I did this at the beginning of creation. I made you man and I can remake you eyeballs that don't work I've got it covered I'm, I'm, I'm remaking you and this is spiritually Jesus is saying look this is the fundamental problem this is spiritually what you need you need to be remade from the inside out now and of course the Pharisees are like they blow their little whistle and say uh, violation you can't do that Jesus you violated the Sabbath and they completely they completely missed the point. They completely missed the point. A few weeks ago, I gave the illustration of a ship. Let's just pretend that there was like a Mars exploration. Planet Earth did a great study of Mars. We got people there. And, and then they're returning home after this expedition. And they've, the, 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 these astronauts, they, um, they pack their bags. They fuel up. They get on their spaceship, they take, they got ample food supply, ample fuel, and they're, they're, they're leaving, they're coming back home, and they're crushing the journey, like they're just nailing it. They're rationing their food, the morale is high, they're dodging asteroids, but there's just one problem. They, they're going in the wrong direction. They're actually heading towards Jupiter and not Earth. And John is saying, look, you can have a really successful life. But to the degree that you are moving away from Jesus, you might as well be on that ship to Jupiter. Like you're heading towards death, darkness, not life and light. To the degree that you're moving towards Jesus, even if you're blind, even if you're a lame beggar, whatever your state is, doesn't matter, you're moving towards life and light. And so here's the point. John is telling us, look, you can't straddle both ships. Let's say there's another ship heading to earth, to life, right? Back home. John is saying you can't be on a ship bound for Jupiter and earth at the same time. It'll, it'll just rip you apart on takeoff. You won't even last a millisecond trying to straddle those things. John is saying, look, there's a world that's passing away and there's a world that is to come. And they're heading in opposite directions. And you can't straddle both worlds. You can't live in both places. You can't occupy both territories. No more than a single person can occupy two spaces at one time. You can't do it. And so this is, this is, this is the clash, right? This is the clash. There's the powers of this world represented by the Pharisees, and then there's Christ and his power. 
clash. We try. We try to straddle, don't we? Don't we try to straddle both worlds? The blind parents do in this passage, and we see this in their response. In verses 18 through uh, 23, this paragraph here, we see the blind parents who buckle under fear. See what the, the blind so here's what happens. The blind man gets healed, the Pharisees approach him, they inquire of him, and then they want to get a second opinion. They want to figure out if he's really born blind, because this is important for their for their case. Is this just sort some sort of trick, or was this man born blind? So they go to the parents. And what we see is that the parents are seeking to preserve good relations with the powers that be. And they answer the Pharisees' questions in verse 20. And they they basically say, yes, he's our son. And yes, he was born blind. But, this is important. So those those are like the easy questions. Yeah, he's our son. And yes, he was born blind. That's pretty much the facts. When the question threatens their relationship to the powers that be, the parents' powers, the Pharisees, they go silent. They say, uh, look at verse 21, the blind man's parents say, they say, how he sees, we don't know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Go ask him, he's of age. Which means he's, he's, this blind man is at least 13 years old. He's probably older, but he's of age. He, he can answer for himself. They punt. Now, John tells us it's not because they don't understand what's, it's not ignorance. That's not why they don't answer the question. The reason they don't answer the question is because of fear. Look at what he says in verse 22 and 23. John gives us a little commentary on it. He says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, they were to be kicked out of the synagogue. So, it appears the blind man's parents believed that Jesus did the work. They believed that Jesus was from God, and yet they feared. They feared the consequences of making that claim before the Pharisees. And look, we're susceptible too. Going back to Bonhoeffer. Remember, he, he, he knew that, that so many Christians would, would buckle under the Nazi regime and withstanding that. And like I said, this has been hard to see in recent centuries, like at least in the American context. But it's becoming more clear that the way of the world and the way of Christ are kind of on two tracks. They are on two tracks, not kind of, They're on two tracks, heading in two different directions. One to life and the other to death. And like I said, the temptation for us is to want to straddle both the world and the world to come. The world that is passing away and the world to come. We want to, we want to straddle both ships. The ship to Jupiter, death, darkness, destruction, and the ship back home to earth, life. In Christ. And as a result, it's tempting for us to want to mold Christianity to the powers that be. In the German context, it was molding it to Nazism. In our own context, it's molding it to the, the secular creed of the day. Right? On the left, it's on the left, the temptation may be to, to want to mold Christianity to the new orthodoxy on sexuality. Maybe even like fly a rainbow flag outside the church doors, right? That's a, that's a temptation for the church. On the right, 
the temptation is to conflate the American project with the kingdom of God, right? Bring those two together. And at its most extreme form, it looks like storming the Capitol on January 6th with Jesus Saves posters, okay? Both are problematic. One is seeking cultural power on the left. The other is seeking political power. But they're both trying to submit the scriptures to the powers that be. And Jesus would have none of it. And look, notice what the parents do. They're answering only the questions that are neutral and not upsetting. None of the offensive aspects. They say what gets the cheers and not the boos. And whether you're on the right or the left of this molding project, molding the faith to the powers that be, that's what happens. You start kind of brushing aside the passages that are inconvenient to those power, powers and going silent on those powers. That's how it works. And I believe, I believe that this question of how we relate to the, to the brokenness and fallenness of the world is so important in the, in the decades to come. And I believe it's going to require courage on our part. So now let's consider this blind man's response. The blind man withstands and in the process shows us uh, courage. So this is point number three. The blind man withstands. Now, Jesus has said in the gospel, this is a big deal in John's gospel especially, that Jesus is the light of the world and that to come into uh, the light of Christ, we become lights. We begin to reflect the light of Christ. And consequently, we are lights in the world. And that's, that's exactly what's happened in this situation with the blind man. The blind man was literally in the dark his whole life from birth. He's in the dark. It's all he sees, nothing. And now he's come into the light of Christ. And guess what? He's starting to shine. He's starting to bring light into the darkness of uh, the Pharisees in this whole situation. And we see it in the second interaction beginning in verse 24. It says, so for the second time, they called the blind man, the Pharisees called the blind man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. Now, they're not saying, brother, uh, the Lord has done a great work in your life. Let's, just, let's give glory to God. Amen, brother. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, tell us the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. That's, it's, it's sort of a testify moment. You, you, tell us, you tell us the truth. And then they say, we know that this man is a sinner. And look at what the blind man says in reply, verse 25. I don't know if he's a sinner, but this is what I do know. I was blind, now I see. It's bottom line. I was blind, and now I see. And that, that lays the whole thing bare, right? This is the bottom line. This blind man now sees. Like, deal with that. Let's not get all confused about some of these other matters that we're distracted by. That's the bottom line. And the Pharisees persist. Look at verse 26. What did he do? How did he open your eyes? They ask. Verse 27, the blind man. I told you already. You didn't listen. You want me to tell you again? And then with a little sass thrown in, he says, do you want to be his disciples too? 
Like, you guys are really interested in this. Is that, is that what this is about? You want to be his disciples? And with that comment, he cuts straight through the charade. You see, they're trying to present as though they're doing this very objective, fair and balanced trial. Um, they're, they're working through the case, and they're trying to be objective. And he just cuts through it, because now they're fuming. They are fundamentally opposed from the outset. They're dark, Jesus is light. They don't go together. And, that's, and, and he cuts straight through that. This is, this is what's going on. The man received light from Jesus, and now he's shining that light on the Pharisees, right? With, with what he's saying. He's shining it on the Pharisees, and he's exposing their motives that previously kind of lay in dark in their hearts. He's exposing it with that question that he asked. And rather than coming into the light, the Pharisees move further and further and further into darkness. That's what, that's what the darkness does. It, that's the irony, right? The light comes and the world, by and large, retreats into the darkness. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. And in fact, that's what they will continue to do until they kill the light, kill the truth. Well, that question makes the Pharisees incensed. They, they revile him. And then uh, the blind man proceeds to take the Pharisees to school. Look at verse 30 and following. The blind man says, well, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. We don't, this hasn't happened before. Not only that, he doesn't say this, but we might add, and, moreover, it's a mark of the kingdom of God's arrival that the blind should receive sight. Okay, so this is another clue, uh, Pharisees. He says, if this man were not from God, he couldn't do these things. Now, you see what's happening? The blind man, uneducated, kind of a know-nothing in the eyes of the world, is gaining wisdom. It's, remember, wisdom is a gift. And we're seeing that on full display right here. God is granting wisdom to this man. And it's hitting him by, like, by the second. This wisdom of God. And he is, and, it, and by the way, it's, it, like I said, it's not coming through training at like the best schools of the land. That's what the Pharisees had. Okay, and they, they're totally lost in this. They're in the dark. And instead, this blind man, because of his encounter with Jesus, has this wisdom that's taking the most educated people in the whole area to school. Here, here's the way to think of it. The more clearly this man sees Jesus, the better he understands all of reality and the nature of the whole situation. And this is significant. This is really interesting. We don't have all these verses in your... If you have your Bibles, uh, look at, look at uh, verse 11 of chapter 9. What does the blind man call Jesus? He's just the man called Jesus. That's a pretty safe bet, right? Man called Jesus. You, uh, he's a man, and his name is Jesus. That's, all, that's, that's, that's to the degree to which he sees Jesus, sees Jesus. Well, then in verse 17 of chapter 9, the blind man calls Jesus a prophet. We're getting closer, but we're still not there, right? Because there's lots of prophets. Islam believes Jesus was a, was a prophet. Okay, so... That's not the goal by any means. And then by the end of the passage, in verse 38, 
which we'll look at next week, and we'll focus there. What does he call him? The Son of Man. It's this important messianic title that Jesus is the Lord. He's the Son of Man. He's the, the King that God is sending. It's a, it's, a, it's a perfect profession of faith. The blind man is like Han Solo coming out of the deep freeze in Return of the Jedi. You know, the visions, it's off, and then it slowly gets better and better and better. And that's what's happening over the course of this passage. The blind man is seeing Jesus more clearly. And as he sees Jesus more clearly, he sees the truth of the situation more clearly. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said when he said, I believe in Christianity like I believe in, in the sun. Not only do I see the sun, but by it, I see everything. And that's what this man is. He's beginning to see the world through Christ and the work of Christ's salvation in this man's life. And he's seeing it quite accurately as a result. And the reason is because, as we've said, Christ is the heartbeat of the universe. He's the very center of everything. He is the, the, the source of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul says. It's all in Christ. If you're going to gain any wisdom in this life, it's going to be found. It's going to be rooted in Christ. Jesus opened this man's eyes and he sees and he sees and as he sees Jesus more clearly, he sees the truth more clearly because the two are inextricably bound together. Jesus is truth. And it doesn't happen all at once. There's doubts along the way. But the promise holds for us as we submit our, our hearts and our minds and our intellect to Christ, we grow in wisdom. We begin to see the world rightly. So, um, this, like we said, this is a picture of Jesus' salvation. This whole episode, this whole chapter, it's a vivid display of what Christ is doing. And what we have is that the light of Christ shines on this blind man and this blind man begins to shine his light on the spiritual darkness and blindness of the Pharisees. And rather than coming into the light, they retreat further and further into darkness. They fasten their seatbelts for that ship bound for Jupiter, for death, darkness, destruction. And look at what they say, verse 34. You were born in utter sin. We, by what, they're saying, the, the, what the subtext of this is this. Okay, yeah, you're blind because you were born in utter sin. Remember the disciples asked the question about the blind man? Uh, did this, is this man blind because of his parents' sin or because of his sin? And Jesus said, wrong question. Well, the Pharisees aren't even asking the question. They've already answered it. You're, you're in utter sin because you're blind. And you would teach us? Verse 34, and they cast him out. The blind man suffers the fate that his parents feared, being cast out of the synagogue. The blind man is cast out of the synagogue. That's what happens to them. He, he suffers that fate. But get this, as we're going to see, we'll look at this next week, he sees Jesus. The blind man sees Jesus, and he gains everything as a result. So, when the light of Christ hits a dark world, there's a clash. When we, who are Christ's lights in the world, confront a dark world, there will be clash, a clash. 
Now the question I want us to consider as we wrap this up is, how do we engage the world lovingly and with courage and not cynically and in a jaded or crusty sort of way? Because it would be very easy if the world is hostile to, uh, to just grow old and crusty about this whole thing. Well, the answer to how we do that, how we engage the world lovingly without cynicism, is to look to Jesus. We said this last week. It's, it's, I think, really significant. In chapter 8, verse 59, the very last verse of chapter 8, the whole, this is right before this whole thing starts, the blind man healing. Do you remember what the crowds do? They scoop up stones off the ground, and they want to kill Jesus. Like, they're trying to kill him. And does he, he, he leaves that situation. Now, does he leave and say, like, fine, if you don't want what I have to offer, I'm out. And just kind of storm off in a huff. You, you guys don't know anything. No. The very next move is to go heal the blind man. See how he's just issuing life in the midst of this hostility? And, of course, the, the, the prime example is when he's actually pinned to a tree crying out, Father, forgive them. It's, it's the love of Christ. Otherwise, if, if, we're not, if we're not rooted in that love of Christ for us as exemplified in the cross where Jesus took on our sin so that we might receive forgiveness and His righteousness, if we're not rooted in that, we will quickly grow fearful and cynical and jaded as we encounter a world marked by darkness. I want us to consider Bonhoeffer again as we close. Because Bonhoeffer, like we said, his confrontation with the dark world of the Nazis ended in death. And what was he doing? What was Bonhoeffer doing on the day of, before his death, like as he was taken to the gallows? What was he doing? He was leading a worship service with the prisoners in the jail. And Payne Best, who was a British... Uh, intelligence agent for the for the for the for the Brits who was captured and in the same prison said this about what Bonhoeffer was doing. He said Bonhoeffer had hardly finished his last prayer when the door opened and two evil-looking men in civilian clothes came in and said, "Prisoner Bonhoeffer, get ready to come with us." Those words "come with us" for all prisoners had come to mean one thing only: the scaffold. We bade him goodbye and he drew me aside and he said, "This is the end." For me, the beginning of life. And then hours later, about a 12-hour period between that and his execution, and one of the doctors who was present at his death had this to say. He says, on the morning of that day between 5 and 6 o'clock, the prisoners were taken from their cells, and the verdicts of the court-martial read out to them. Through the half-open door in one room of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way this lovable man prayed, so devout, so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a short prayer, then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensured after a few seconds. In the almost 50 years that I worked as a doctor, I've never seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Did you see how he's described in those final moments as the clash is heating up and he's about to die? Did you see how he responded? He's worshiping. He's praying. He's being described as lovable, 
as brave and composed, quote, I mean, those are quotes. Well, how did Bonhoeffer do it? Was he just really strong, a really strong man, kind of that German, austere German kind of stock? No, he had his eyes fixed on Jesus. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says. He says, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all of his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies, and he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends, to sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but with the devout people. O oh, you blasphemers and betrayers of Christ, if Christ had done what you are doing, who would ever have been spared? Bonhoeffer had laser focus on Christ, his Savior. And he was rooted in the love of Christ, which the scriptures tell us, drive out all fear. That's how we get courage, to, get, to be rooted in this love of Christ. And I, I realize, like, we're not going to, it's not likely that we're going to die at the hands of Nazis. I, I, I understand that. But we will face difficulty in this world. Christ promised it. And may we confront, may, may we confront that clash with love and grace, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we feel so uh, weak, so flaky at times. Um, would you root us in the love of Christ, making us bold as uh, many of, of your people have been throughout history, these examples of courage, Christian courage, would you grant us that, refine us into the image of Christ so that we might be more and more like him? We thank you for his death. It's in that that we live. It's in his name we pray. Amen.